ora and welcome to Requisite Words. I'm Peter Ravlich, and you're listening to a podcast about poetry. Strange fits of passion have I known, and I will dare to tell. But in the lover's air alone, what once to me befell. When she I loved looked every day, fresh as a rose in June, I to her cottage bent my way beneath an evening moon. Upon the moon I fixed my eye all over the wide lea, with quickening pace my horse drew nigh, those paths so dear to me. And now we reached the orchard plot, and as we climbed the hill, the sinking moon to Lucy's cot came near, and nearer still. In one of those sweet dreams I slept, kind nature's gentlest boon, and all the while my eyes I kept on the descending moon. My horse moved on, hoof after hoof he raised and never stopped. When down behind the cottage roof, at once the bright moon dropped. What fond and wayward thoughts will slide into a lover's head? Oh, mercy, to myself I cried, if Lucy should be dead. She dwelt among the untrodden ways, beside the springs of Dove. A maid whom there were none to praise, and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye. Fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. I travelled among unknown men in lands beyond the sea. Nor England did I know till then what love I bore to thee. Tis past that melancholy dream, nor will I quit thy shore a second time. For still I seem to love thee more and more. Among the mountains did I feel the joy of my desire, And she I cherished turned her wheel beside an English fire. Thy mornings showed, thy nights concealed, The bowers where Lucy played, And thine too is the last green field that Lucy's eyes surveyed. Three years she grew in sun and shower. Then nature said, A lovelier flower on earth was never sown. This child I to myself will take. She shall be mine, and I will make a lady of my own. Myself will to my darling be both law and impulse. And with me the girl in rock and plain, In earth and heaven, in glade and bower, Shall feel an overseeing power 
to kindle or restrain. She shall be sportive as the fawn, that wild with glee across the lawn or up the mountain springs. And hers shall be the breathing balm, and hers the silence and the calm of mute insensate things. The floating clouds their state shall lend to her, for her the willow bend, nor shall she fail to see, even in the motions of the storm, grace that shall mould the maiden's form by silent sympathy. The stars of midnight shall be dear to her, and she shall lean her ear in many a secret place, where rivulets dance their wayward round, and beauty born of murmuring sound shall pass into her face. And vital feelings of delight shall rear her form to stately height, her virgin bosom swell. Such thoughts to Lucy I will give, while she and I together live, here in this happy dell. Thus nature spake, the work was done, how soon my Lucy's race was run. She died and left to me, this heath, this calm and quiet scene, the memory of what has been, and never more will be. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. In the last episode, I shared the fifth of the Lucy poems, but the entire sequence is a really remarkable and impactful work, which I wanted to share and briefly unpack this week. When Wordsworth was named Poet Laureate, he fell out of favour with many of his Romantic peers, who saw him as betraying the causes that the Romantic movement fought for. But even in the face of such disapproval from the Romantics as a collective, the Lucy sequence still managed to set an enduring standard for romantic poetry. Overall, it's a melancholy, intensely pastoral work, which contains little agency for the humans, who are governed respectively by love, by fear, and by nature, with a capital N. But it's also quite a beautiful construction, and I'd like to dive in by unpacking each of the five parts. In part one, Strange Fits of Passion Have I Known, the speaker identifies themselves as a lover with a story for lovers, and very vaguely introduces Lucy herself. And it might be vague, but the contrast is important. Lucy is seen as perpetually vibrant as a newly blooming rose. She is isolated, she lives in a cottage, and the speaker has to travel there. While she is initially described as timeless, the speaker is very much subject to time. Beneath the evening moon might be a literal description, but the following stanzas demonstrate that the speaker is also fixated on the passage of the moon, 
racing it as they both draw closer to Lucy. And up until the third to last stanza, this is the speaker's regular routine. There, we are taken instead to an immediate night. In one of those sweet dreams, one of those whimsical journeys to Lucy's cottage, their horse is approaching steadily when, this particular night, the moon beats them to the cottage. The cute fantasy is then challenged with superstition. The moon now becomes an omen, and the speaker immediately fears the worst. Now at this point, in the immediate context of the information we've been given in part one, the fear itself is ridiculous. Lucy is the timeless one, fresh and vital, and it's the speaker who has to race time to be with her. And the very first stanza of the poem acknowledges this. Strange fits of passion have I known. Love doesn't conform to logic, the speaker is saying, and in fact often flies in the face of reason. Nevertheless, the poem ends on this sombre and utterly irrational fear that Lucy may be dead. So from that irrational fear, we move on to part two, which we might expect to be about the lovers finally reuniting, but instead is an epitaph. She dwelt among the untrodden ways, is really simple but exquisite. Aside from using the past tense in she dwelt, it certainly buries the lead. Both the imagery and the literal description tell us that Lucy lived a life of isolation in an unspoiled, natural setting. And although part one has already told us that the speaker is in love with Lucy, they now expand on the depth of that love. Fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. Lucy is the love of the speaker's life. And as is then confirmed, their worst fears were realized and she is now dead. Now you might argue that Lucy's death would primarily be a blow to, well, to Lucy, but the speaker is remaining true to those strange fits of passion with the final line. This is all about them. And sure enough, that's where part three takes us, to the speaker's immediate grief and an attempt to reconcile their former lifestyle with their need to hold on to their memories of Lucy. And in part three, we're told that the speaker used to be a traveller, but cannot now extricate their memories of Lucy from their memories of England. So we get this sort of mythologizing of the land itself as the place where they were in love, the place where they were together, and the last place that Lucy saw. And I think here is where we can see Wordsworth's strength in shaping the sequence. Because we've completed a transition from strange fits of passion and the uh, ephemeral nature of love to a really concrete location for that love. We've pinned it to England, almost personifying the land. And then we reach the fourth part, which raises the stakes. Lucy is no longer a part of England. She becomes a woman of nature itself. And similarly, we see the speaker having grappled with their initial shock and grief and outrage, and turning their thoughts back onto Lucy herself. And if we had a brief epitaph before, now we receive a full eulogy. In part four, we see some figurative deafness, as the speaker invokes nature's voice. This is no longer me speaking, don't take my word for how important Lucy was, take nature's. Much of the metaphor in part four might sound cliched today, but that's due in part to the success of the Romantic Poets. And we see more bubbling beneath the surface. 
There are biblical allusions here. The power to kindle or restrain is eerily similar to the binding and loosing of the disciples, following so closely from earth and heaven. But the speaker is placing Lucy above every figure they invoke. And while it comes across in the moment as a fervent attempt to capture her essence, the piece has a more significant goal as we move toward part five. In part four, we see the conflation of Lucy's solitude in life with the natural world itself, decreed by nature, and that sets up the final part perfectly. Because on the face of it, part five is a cry of loss. But if we accept nature's ostensible words, as reported by the speaker, we see that not much has changed for Lucy. She was already quiet and isolated. She had the silence and the calm of mute, insensate things. And she couldn't feel the touch of earthly years, because she was, under nature's law, more thing than human, not in any derogatory sense, but as an indelible part of the natural world, as much as the rocks or stones or trees, who now contain, both literally and figuratively, the speaker's love. But of course, that argument, in fact, the entire sequence, might be little more than a strange fit of passion, a contortion of logic in the face of overwhelming grief. And such might be the overarching purpose of the Lucy poems, an irrational, contradictory journey that nevertheless continues to resonate with irrational, contradictory lovers throughout the centuries. Requisite Words is an Inklings production by Peter Ravlich. Opening music is Be Chillin' by Alexander Nakarada. Find out more at inklings.co.nz or follow us on Twitter at Requisite Words.